0: I am absolutely convinced from my own understanding of sociology, my own understanding of history, that we live in one of the most exciting times in the Christian history. I want to explain to you what I mean by this. As we saw in the last message from Paul and Silas' experience in the Philippian jail, we saw how God always does His best work when there is a clear definition between truth and falsehood. God's light always shines much brighter when the darkness come up to the surface. God always manifests His greatness and the greatness of His power among His children and among His people when they trust in Him alone. God Supernatural manifestations are best expressed and best experienced by His people in the times when they abandon themselves to Him alone. And that is why I say that I believe with all my heart that we are living in one of the most exciting times in the Christian era. Let me first summarize to you chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. First 15 verses of chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Paul goes to Berea first. He gets persecuted and opposed by the Jews. He goes to the Thessaloniki, and they do the same thing to him. He leaves Timothy and Silas and Luke. The writer, the author, the, the one who's writing the book of Acts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He leaves them into Thessaloniki, and then he goes alone to Athens. He goes alone to what it was known as the cultural capital of the Roman Empire. Let me tell you a few things about Athens. Athens, like so many of our cities today, boasted about its rich philosophical heritage. They boasted about the universities that they have, and the schools of higher education that they have in their city. Athens, like so many of our cities today, boasting, they were always boasted about the art and the music and the literature. The Athenians lived actually on their past history. They haven't done anything for the present and the future. I'm talking about the time of Paul. But they lived on their past reputation of being the empire's intellectual capital, the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. And Paul lands in Athens as a tourist. Because really what they were doing, they just smuggled him out of the Thessaloniki because they thought it was going to kill him. So they smuggled him out, and he goes to Athens all alone. As a tourist, but he ends up being the evangelist. How did he do that? I have three things I want to share with you this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God is going to imprint those on your heart, going to imprint them on my heart, that Paul's model of reacting to the idolatrous condition of his day, that will be your model and my model in reacting to the idolatrous condition of our day. First of all, Paul became distressed over their idolatry. Secondly, Paul was, became determined to introduce them to Jesus. And thirdly, Paul had a, a definitive message to their empty hearts. Paul's distress over their idolatry. Why was he distressed? Now, my beloved friend, I want to tell you something. If you know Jesus Christ, and if you are in deep appreciation of the grace of God and the favor of God and the mercy of God that snatched you out of the jaws of eternal death and damnation. You should be, and if you're not, there's something wrong with you, you should be distressed over the condition of the unsaved. Paul's reaction should be our reaction when we come face to face with ignorance of the truth. Paul's reaction should be our reaction when we see our societies smothered with idolatry. Look at verse 16 of chapter 17 of the book of Acts. The Bible said that Paul was greatly distressed. In fact, probably some other translation said Paul was provoked by grief and indignation. Paul was distressed at the fact that men and women who are created in God's own image, that men and women who were created to glorify God, men and women who were created to honor God and bring honor to His name, instead they were honoring statues and idols that are made with hand. Recently I was repulsed when I was watching a documentary on television when I saw a man in the northwest of the United States was showing the camera how he worships his God and he went to a little closet in his living room and he opened and there was a tiny little statue. He put his hands together and he bowed to that statue. And then I said to myself, why am I distressed about this? Is only idolatry is that... That is the primitive idolatry? No. And then I began to think of of how many sophisticated idols surrounding us in this very culture, in this very city. How we are right now living in the midst of sophisticated idols. What is an idol? I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to explain to you some more things about that. An idol is a God substitute, that's an idol. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's primitive or sophisticated. Any God substitute in the life of an individual is an idol that has to go. An idol is any person or anything that occupies the place that belongs to God alone. An idol can be the pursuit of wealth for wealth's sake. An idol can be political ideology. An idol can be uncontrollable appetite for sex, for drugs, for alcohol. An idol can be a person, a husband or a wife, a child or a father or a mother. An idol can be that endless recreation an endless desire for pleasure-seeking. An idol can be Work for work's sake and work for achievement's sake. An idol can be a church. An idol can be religion. An idol can be even a Christian service. An idol can be television. An idol can be sport. An idol can be a leisure. Anything that takes God's place is an idol. Listen carefully, I'm going to tell you. The city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem did not have the idols that the city of Athens had. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ comes up on the Mount of Olives, and He looks down upon the city, and He was equally distressed. And He begins to weep over Jerusalem. He said, wait a minute, but Jerusalem had no idol. Oh yes, the idols were worse than those in Athens. Because the idols of Jerusalem were false religion. The idols of Jerusalem were false rituals. The idols of Jerusalem were people who were going to church and speaking to God with their lips, but their hearts were far away from Him. That's why Jesus wept. And that is why Paul was distressed. Let me tell you something, beloved friends. Until you and I become distressed over sin in our society, God will not move. Until you and I become provoked by idolatry in all of its forms... Until you and I are broken over the idolatry with all its forms. Until you and I are able to weep over idolatry in all its forms. Until you and I can inwardly be indignant over idolatry in all its forms. Until you and I become grief stricken over idolatry in the church of Jesus Christ, who deny that salvation is through Jesus alone, until you and I become abhorred by those who claim to be Christians, and yet they deny the very heart of the gospel, until you and I are inwardly wounded by the apathy of the Christian community, until you and I come to the point in our lives of doing that, we will not understand Acts 17, 16, that Paul was greatly distressed. Here's the problem in America today. Most churches are playing churches, not praying churches. If they're praying churches, they would have been here an hour ahead of time on their faces before God praying for worship. That's what would have happened. We would see the third great awakening that we are longing for. But one of the great things about the Apostle Paul, he did not allow distress to lead him into discouragement. He did not allow being distressed with sin and idolatry to lead him into despair. He did not allow his distress over idolatry to lead him into depression. He did not allow it to lead him into a sense of hopelessness, no. Which brings me to the second point. Paul's distress made him determined to introduce them to Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you ever have a sense of distress over the condition in which we live, it's going to lead you either to hopelessness or it's going to motivate you to do something about the situation. Our sense of distress must motivate us to lovingly confront people with the gospel or we will become indifferent and we'll become apathetic. Our sense of inward provocation must lead us to lovingly invite men and women to have an encounter with the living God, or else we will be discouraged and become unfruitful, ineffective for God. Our sense of indignation must bring us under the conviction that these men and women are so desperate for what you know, for what I know. And Paul understood, Paul understood that in a culture where conflicting philosophies and conflicting thoughts that are fighting, that are at war for our minds and the minds of our children, for our hearts and the hearts of our children, that these conflicting philosophies that are fighting. Is no time for the Christian to retreat. Is no time to say, well, I don't have anything to offer. I don't know how to get into that war. I can't do anything about it. No, 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 no. In Athens, Greece, in the time of Paul, there were many conflicting philosophical schools. The two dominant ones were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics actually called Paul a babla. Now, a babla in this kind of context means that he's a person who does not have an original thought. <laughs> now, they thought this is an insult. Paul took that as a compliment. He was not proclaiming himself. He was proclaiming Jesus. Sure enough, he doesn't have an original thought. The Epicurean philosophy was established by Epicurus 342 and 270 B.C., and he lived at the same time as the founder of the Stoics, and I'm going to come to that in a minute. What is the Epicureans taught? Well, the Epicureans taught that indulgence is the key to life. They taught that pleasure is the highest good. The Epicurean professed to believe in the gods, but then they immediately go on and say, that the gods are not really interested in mankind. The Epicureans taught that pleasure and the pleasure that is most worthy of pursuing was a life of tranquility, a life that is free from passion and pain, and above all, free from the fear of death. And then they go on to teach that there is no life after death. When you die, it's all over. The Stoics, on the other hand, almost had an opposite kind of philosophical approach to life. The Stoics were opposite to the Epicureans. This philosophical school was established by a man named Zeno, who came from Cyprus and lived in Greece. He lived in 340 to 260 BC, give or take. In fact, Epicurus and Zeno both were contemporaries. The Stoics were fatalistic. They were pantheistic. The Stoics taught that God was the world's soul and the world was God's body. At its best, Stoicism was marked with moral earnestness, but all oh, it was marred was spiritual pride. To the Stoic, virtue was the supreme good. Men, they said, should live above passion. People should be unmoved by grief or joy or pain or pleasure. I do not make a good stoic. Some of you do. I don't. That passed me by. Indifference was a key to life, they said. Apathy was the stoics lot in life. No wonder they called Paul a babbler. No wonder both the epicureans and the stoics they were aghast at the thought That the God who created the world became a man, and then he hung on a cross and died to pay for the sins of people who believe in him. And then he rose from the dead in order that he comes back one day to judge all of humanity. They were aghast at this preaching. But Paul was determined to introduce them to Jesus. And therefore, he preached a definitive message to their empty hearts please listen to me carefully the reason men and women anywhere do not believe worship and obey the true god is because they do not want to know believe and worship the true god it's their choice god made himself known in so many ways But people deliberately and consciously reject Him. And they don't want to believe in Him as the true God. I want to illustrate what I mean here. Look at American society. More than 90% of the population claim to believe in God. But if you would go up to one of those people and you say to them, God will judge you and you will stand before His judgment seat one day. Probably 60% of them have said, oh no, not this God. Uh Uh-uh, not this God. If you would go to them and say that anyone who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, as the only Savior and Lord, and if you reject Him, you're going to spend eternity in torment. You're going to spend eternity in pain. You're going to spend eternity in regret. You're going to spend eternity in damnation. Oh, no, not that God. We don't want a judgmental God. They want a God that they designed, you see, so that He is designed the way they want Him. They want a God that they can fashion the way they want Him fashioned. I mean, you know, just like you have a designer jeans, you know, you get a designer God. It's that easy. Well, do you have a a Versace God or do you have a Calvin Klein God? That's our culture today. And Paul's message was, in effect, though you rejected the God who revealed Himself in His creation and chosen instead to worship the creatures and worship other gods, yet your hearts are empty and you are discontented with your gods. Though you refuse to worship the Creator, and yet you continue to worship His creatures and His creation. Though you try to fill your minds and your hearts with all sorts of philosophical thought about God, and yet… You have a God-shaped vacuum in your life that only the Creator God can fill. And that is why Paul goes on to say, and that's the reason why there will be no excuse in the day of judgment. Nobody can ever stand in the day of judgment and say, God, you gave me a raw deal. No one. No one. Listen carefully, please. The sun worshiper will be asked on the day of judgment, why did you reject the creator of the sun? The pleasure seeker will be asked on the day of judgment, why did you not worship the one who created all pleasures for us? Those who worship at the shrine of science and technology will be asked on the day of judgment, why did you not worship the God who placed all knowledge on earth for our enjoyment and for our convenience and for our blessings? There is no excuse for anyone on the day of judgment, says the Apostle Paul. And Paul's message begins with the Creator God and ends with calling them to repent of the sin of rejecting God. Paul's message begins with the creator of life, the sustainer of life, the ruler of life, and he ends up with the rightful demand by that creator to be worshipped alone. Paul's message begins with the owner of all creation and ends up with that owner's rightful demands for response from those whom he made, those whom he created, and those whom he sustained. Paul's message is this, that all idolatry, whether it is primitive or sophisticated, all idolatry, whether it is metal or mental, all idolatry, whether material or imaginary, all forms of idolatry inexcusable by God. You know, one of the biggest idolatry of our day is the trying of to minimize the gulf between the Creator and His creation. Minimizing the gulf between the Creator and the creatures so that we can bring Him under our control. But the truth is this, beloved friends, listen carefully. Modern-day idolatry that says that we are gods with a small g will be severely judged by God. Modern-day idolatry that says that God is in us all and we all in God will be severely judged on the day of judgment. The Athenians have acknowledged that in having that inscription in that altar that says to the unknown God, They have acknowledged their ignorance of the true God. And here the Apostle Paul had just provided them with the evidence for their ignorance. Look at verse 30 of Acts 17, verse 30. Here's what Paul said, Ignorance is no excuse. That's a use of translation, but that's exactly what it means. Ignorance is no excuse. For God never, never left Himself without a witness. But it is in His mercy God is giving them a second chance. It is in His mercy that He's giving them another opportunity to repent and ask for His forgiveness. It is in His mercy that He's going to withhold His judgment a little longer in order to give them one more time to repent and seek His forgiveness. I am so glad He gave me a chance. But not only that, Paul said God provided proof that the day of judgment is coming and that the judge is going to be no other than Jesus Christ and their greatest proof was to raise him from the dead after three days in the tomb. Paul is saying the resurrection is God's ultimate proof The judgment is coming upon the living and the dead. Every one of us is going to face the judgment of God. There may be someone here today he said, I thought all religions are the same. I thought all roads lead to heaven. I thought all things are just equal. And today, I heard there's only one way to God. Whether you're listening by radio or watching by television, you've been confused by all the idolatry in our culture and all the philosophical mumbo-jumbo in our culture. And you've been ignoring the Lord of life. He's calling you today to surrender to Him, to repent of your sins and receive His forgiveness. say, I'm not bad. Yes, you are. If you lied once, you deserve hell. That's what the Bible said. But there is a way out. God said, through Jesus, I can not only forgive you, but assure you of eternal life. I'm going to tell you this true story, and I'm going to conclude. The year was... 360 A.D. Julian was enthroned as the emperor of Rome. Julian was the nephew of Constantine the Great. You remember Constantine the Great who Christianized the Roman Empire, who Christianized the Roman world. But his nephew Julian, when he came to power, he sought to reverse what his uncle did. He brought back pagan worship, and he began to persecute Christians. He withdrew from Christians the protection that his uncle Constantine had given them. And that is why he was called the apostate emperor. Sometimes you hear me say the word apostate. Apostate is a person who has come to the truth, has seen the truth, and maybe even walked in the truth for a little while and then turned their back on the truth. He was called the apostate emperor. Julian not only openly persecuted Christians, not only that he withdrew the protection that was given to them by Constantine, he literally made the life hell on earth. He was trained and educated in Athens. And there in his school in Athens where he was trained, he was studying alongside a Christian man, a committed Christian by the name of Agaton. Despite of his hatred toward Christians and the persecution of Christians, he liked Agaton, and he brought him into the court to work for him, to work with him in his court. But Julian frequently, frequently made fun of his Christian friend, frequently put him down, frequently teased him, and then one day, in front of a very large crowd of wealthy Roman citizens, he began to poke fun at his Christian friend Agaton. He says, Agaton, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? Agaton, who could not take it anymore, he said to him, He is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build you a coffin, emperor. What courage. Less than two years later, on June 26, 366 A.D., Julian was dying with a Persian arrow in his heart. He attempted to go retake the ancient Persian Empire, and he failed. Dying, Julian grasped a handful of dust red with his own blood. He flung the dust heavenward, and he yelled, Vesisti, Galilea! You have conquered, Galilean. The Roman Empire has long since crumbled in the dust of history. But the emperor of the Galilean moves on. The Bible said that God desires not for anyone to die in their sin, but that they turn from their wickedness and live. He would be rather building a mansion in the sky for you than you building an eternal coffin for yourself. Would you respond to him? If you want to be assured of eternal life and not eternal judgment, you can do that today. Our God, I thank you that we have done nothing to deserve your grace. You did it all, and you handed it to us as a gift. Oh God, I pray that today many will respond to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, receive His forgiveness, walk with Him in His power. Father, I pray that anyone who was into the idolatry of religion, idolatry of rituals, idolatry of denominations, they will surrender that today and that they walk with You, the only hope, the only Savior, the only Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.